We began last week a three-part Advent series on the purposes of the first Advent of Jesus Christ. And we're looking here in Galatians chapter 4 as a text from which we sort of spring outward. Now, that's not typically what we do around here. We typically go through a book verse by verse and stick very closely to the text and, and look at other texts that influence that text or that say more about those particular theological or biblical points. But this is a little bit different. This text needs to be explored in its details, but it also suggests that we look elsewhere. Because Galatians chapter 4 is not primarily another explanation of the advent of Christ. In fact, if you look at most of the New Testament, there isn't a whole lot said about the birth of Christ when it comes down to the volume of the message itself. There's way more emphasis, frankly, put upon the death of Christ. It's interesting that the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the written Gospels, are sort of a unique genre unto themselves. They are biography, but they're unique biography. Typically, whenever you read biography, you have somewhat of a balance within the life of that person. There's a good bit spent on their childhood and early upbringing in the middle part of their life and all the way to their death. The Gospels are different in that sense. The Gospels place way more emphasis on the last even week of Jesus' life and the balance of the volume of the material there. But implicit within that emphasis is the idea that Jesus had to become a man. In fact, in Mark's gospel, his birth is not mentioned. In John's gospel, his birth is not explicitly mentioned, though though hinted at. In fact, we know very little about Christ's childhood. But implicit, as I've already said, within this volume of emphasis in the gospels, the emphasis on Jesus' atoning work, his death, is the implicit idea that he had to come. In other words, he couldn't die unless he was actually a man who possessed life, real life. He wasn't a phantom. He wasn't merely an apparition. He wasn't just a spirit. He was a man. He was the God-man, to be sure, but a man nonetheless. And I think that this passage in front of us today in Galatians chapter 4, which began last week and which we'll finish next week, suggests to us that the embodiment into flesh of the eternal Son of God was not inconsequential to our salvation. It wasn't just one possible way that God could have saved us. No, it was the only way that the sons of Adam, the daughters of Eve, could be redeemed. The only way that we could be reconciled to the Father, the only way that we could be brought back to the original design was through the incarnation of the Son of God. So, even though the birth of Christ does not receive the same emphasis and the volume of information in the Scriptures, there's this implicit idea that had it not happened, none of the rest of it could have happened. The incarnation is essential to the rescuing, redemptive work of Jesus. With that in mind, let's read once again Galatians chapter 4, beginning in verse 4 where we were last week, and we'll go down through verse (coughs) 7. This is God's Word. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of woman, 
born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. So last week in the first purpose that this text puts in front of us in regard to the advent of Christ, we talked about the fact that we have been rescued from the fall. In fact, we saw last week that God sovereignly and graciously sent his son to rescue us rebels condemned to death in order that we might become his beloved children. That's, that's the focus of those first two verses, verses four and five of this text. God sovereignly and graciously sent His Son. It was His eternal plan to bring about redemption for those He created. The purpose of sending Him was to rescue us rebels, condemned to death by our sin. And the goal of all that was to make us His beloved children. That, we can say, is the past element of our redemption. But this text assumes and puts in front of us the idea that there is a present reality to our redemption. And corresponding to that last line from verse 5, we find that Jesus has fundamentally changed the relationship between us and God. I think that's what verse 6 is saying to us. We see in verse 5 that God's purpose in redeeming us through Christ was to make us once again His children through adoption. But what happens when we're adopted? What was the purpose of that? In fact, why is that imagery used? Well, Paul reveals in verse 6 that what has happened through our adoption is that our relationship to the Father has been fundamentally changed. So it's interesting here in this text that as Paul hints at the incarnation of Christ through his birth, that came about through God's sovereign and gracious plan, that the goal of all that was adoption. And as we consider the very nature of adoption, we are reminded that our relationship with the Father has been fundamentally altered. Mark talked about this a bit ago in referencing the idea from Romans chapter 5, but, but Paul says there that we were alienated from God because of our sins. In fact, we were the enemies of God. Paul does not mince words. I've mentioned this before, but I think it's simple and profound. One of the leading evangelical scholars of our day is R.C. Sproul. And one time Sproul was asked, what are we saved from? And I assume the questioner was thinking that he would receive an answer, something like, we are saved from the devil we are saved from our sins. We are saved from futility. We are saved from fear or any host of other things. And all those things, I think, would be legitimate answers. But Sproul's answer to the question was, we are saved from God. That's kind of a profound thought. God saves us from Himself. This does not make God schizophrenic or bipolar. It demonstrates to us that the harmony of God's attributes are held in perfect tension. 
God must punish sin. But God does not delight in the death of the wicked. God delights in demonstrating His grace upon those who are rebels. So what has the Son of God done? He has brought us back into relationship with the Father. So it's interesting here in this text that as we think about this baby coming into the world, which is what verse 4 hints to us, it's interesting that Paul connects that to adoption. So Joseph and Mary got a baby. We, we celebrate that whenever babies come into the world. We love that. It's beautiful. But through that baby who would become a man, we get to come back into a relationship with God. So Christmas is about the birth of Christ, a son being given to a man and a woman who would become the one who would redeem us from our sins so that we can become sons and daughters once again. That's beautiful. Christmas is about celebration of a son being born. And as we consider the implications of the Advent season, isn't that what we're really celebrating ultimately? The rebirth of sons and daughters? The symmetry of God's redemptive plan and the implications are beautiful and astounding and breathtaking. So it is perfectly fitting today that the ladies of our church gather together and celebrate not the natural birth of a child to Phil and Mary, but the adoptive bringing into their family of this beautiful little girl. It is no less miraculous than a biological birth. In fact, in some ways, it demonstrates to us the beauty of God's redeeming work in ways that another birth cannot. One is not more important than another. Do not misunderstand me, please. I give you that caveat. Do not misunderstand what I'm saying. I'm merely saying that when a child is brought into a family through adoption, it immediately sends our hearts and our minds to the redeeming work of Christ through which we are adopted into the family of God. So adoption is gospel work, both because we have been adopted into the family of God and then when we adopt children into our families, we are reminded of what God has done for us to rescue us out of certain doom and to bring us to Himself. It is not just here that Paul links together the idea of redemption and adoption. He does it also in Romans chapter 8. Paul says, Therefore all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. Notice here in Galatians chapter 4, verse 6, that the Spirit is the one who allows us to cry, Abba, Father. Paul says the same thing in Romans chapter 8. Now, throughout all of Paul's writings, Paul wrote much of the theology of our New Testaments. Paul speaks of the gospel. So, in other words, you cannot go to any of Paul's letters 
and find any weakness of articulation of the gospel. It's everywhere. But I think we can say without any real hesitation that his letter to the Roman church and his letter to the Galatians, those two letters in particular are clear delineations, articulations, explanations of what the gospel actually is. If you want to delineate, if you want to carefully explain the nature of the gospel itself, especially in opposition to false gospels, you go to Romans and you go to Galatians. Those are the first two places you go. And isn't it interesting in both places that Paul speaks of redemption in relation to adoption through the work of the Spirit? He does it in both places. It makes us think that perhaps... Paul's theology was rich in its adoption imagery. In other words, maybe wherever he went, every city in which you found Paul preaching and planting churches, you would have heard him talking about these ideas. That they would have just been rolling off of his tongue to the point that perhaps the hearers thought, Paul, you said that last week. Why do you keep talking about this? But can you really pick a better image, a better metaphor to demonstrate one being rescued from certain doom and the cataclysmic, drastic change of that child now being brought near to the one who had the responsibility of destroying the one who formerly was a sinner? Could a more perfect metaphor be chosen to show the great transformation from one who deserves death to now one who was brought to the very one who should deal out the death blow. You couldn't pick a more dynamic metaphor than adoption. And Paul picked it up. He took it up under influence of the Spirit. And he says to all who will hear, you deserve the death blow from the one whom you have offended. But the one you have offended, I just said you. The one whom you have offended, I just made up a brand new word. The one whom you have offended, he dealt a death blow to his son so that now you can become the father's sons and daughters once again. You couldn't pick a more beautiful metaphor than that. So it's no mistake that we find it here in Romans as well as in Galatians chapter 4. So the idea that we have in front of us today reminds us that redemption is about what God has done for us to make us sons and daughters, but also reminding us that there are present implications for that. That is to say, Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 through 7, I think, put in front of us the idea that there are past realities to our salvation. We have been brought into God's fellowship, but there are also present realities And as we will see next week, there are future realities. In fact, verse 7 here in Galatians chapter 4 says that we are heirs. That that looks forward. So Paul is saying in Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 through 7, there are past, present, and future realities to our redemption. We have been brought into the family of God. We were rebels under God's condemnation, and now we aren't anymore. Past realities. But there are present realities too, and that will be our 
focus for today. I think verse 6 says to us that in the here and now, our adoption has significant implications. In the here and now, we are crying out, Abba, Father. Paul suggests in Romans chapter 8 that the reason we do that is because this life is so hard. In fact, if you go on further in the context of the verses we just read in Romans chapter 8, it is very clear that this life is incredibly difficult. So, what we're going to do is we're going to take this singular verse today in Galatians chapter 4 and allow it to suggest to us other passages where similar thoughts are brought out and see what those passages say to us about present implications of Christ's redemptive work that has resulted in our adoption. The first thing I want us to see today is that we can rest. What's the first implication for us of the present reality of Christ's first advent? The purpose we saw last week is that we have been rescued from condemnation. But I think the present reality for us is that we can rest in God's fatherly love to us. Jesus' advent brings us into rest. We can rest. Turn with me, please, to John chapter 14. So, I've said to you that Galatians chapter 4 verse 6 suggests that we look other places where similar ideas are brought out, ideas of redemption, ideas of adoption. And in John chapter 14, we we find that to be true. In John chapter 14, verse 18, Jesus is soon going to be arrested and crucified where His atoning work will be accomplished on the cross. But notice what He says to the disciples before He is arrested and led away to His death. What does He say? I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. What was Jesus about to experience? I don't think this would be too much of a stretch to say that in a sense… Jesus was going to be temporarily orphaned to make us sons again. It does us well, brothers and sisters, to plumb the depths of the gospel and meditate upon them. The disciples certainly in the moment could not have possibly understood all that Jesus was saying. But John, in writing this gospel, 50 to 60 years after Jesus' death and resurrection, understood. He understood that Jesus, His Savior, His Lord, the one that He knew so well, would would give up His own sonhood for a moment so that John and all those that would read John's writings would understand that orphanhood would no longer be our destiny, but sonship would be our destiny. Jesus goes on to say in verse 19, Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more. But you will see me, because I live, you also will live. And that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Look in verse 25, These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you, verse 27. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. 
Galatians 4, 6 suggests that we, that we consider the idea of redemption and what redemption has accomplished, which, which is adoption. And as we look at other portions of Scripture where those ideas are brought out, redemption, sonship through adoption, we, we look here in this section which carries to us similar ideas, and we find that one of the results of that, one of the results of redemption that comes into adoption is that we will have peace. We can rest. Later on in the same section, in verse 33 of chapter 16, Jesus says, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Beloved today, there are many reasons why it is hard to rest. For some of you, it is so hard to rest that it's hard to listen today. Your minds are a million miles away, and I understand that. But, beloved, we need that. Isn't it striking how we turn to all sorts of things to find peace? We do it with sex. We do it with money. We do it with jobs and spouses children, entertainment, holidays, family, church, friendships, possessions, exercise, food, and on and on you go. But aren't you finding, I certainly am, and it's progressive, it's not having been found, it's something that we are finding progressive, aren't you finding that all those things, good as they are, cannot ultimately bring rest? They just can't. Jesus knew before He departed that the disciples would face tribulation right away, from within and without, not only the persecution that would definitely come upon them because of the authorities that hated Jesus and those that followed Him but also their own fears. So what does he say to them? He says, brothers, you won't be orphans. I will come to you, but I will come to you through the Spirit. You see, this redemptive work of Christ is is Trinitarian. The Father sends the Son, and the Father and the Son send the Spirit. The Father reconciles through the Son and the ministry of the Spirit rebels back to themselves. Galatians 4, Romans 8, John 14 through 16, it's robustly Trinitarian. It's important that we not just be Trinitarian on a doctrinal statement somewhere on our website, but that we worship God as He is. God the Father wanted to reconcile to Himself lost sons and daughters, so He slaughtered His own Son to make us sons and daughters, and He sends His Spirit to grant us new life and faith and empower us for service. One of the primary implications, I think, however, as we have in front of us right now, is that sons and daughters may rest, and that is of utmost importance. Our small church is undergoing 
perhaps more than its fair share of suffering in this season. Sickness, concerns over money, death, impending death, struggle with sin, and on and on we can go. It seems like for the past number of months here in our church, almost every week there is something new that compounds the reality that we are struggling and suffering. I suspect, because this is the way life works, that, that it will ebb and flow for us. Right now, the suffering seems to be flowing. It'll ebb at some point. We'll have a period of sustained peace and rest and tranquility and lack of hardship, I suppose. But it will come again, and it will be that way until the one that we will talk about next week comes back to fulfill the inheritance that He has promised us. But even in the midst of the turmoil and the storms, we are told that we can rest. Certainly, the disciples that that received these words from Jesus were about to go through severe storms. But they would not be left alone. In fact, they could be sustained in the midst of their storms and still have peace and still have rest. So I say to you today who, who do not have tranquility, who are a bundle of anxious nerves, who are sad, who are dealing with the depths of depression, I say to you that I understand. And I say to you that your brothers and sisters understand, and this is why He has made us into an assembly but I say to you much more fundamentally, because even if we understand we can't fix it, we can't ultimately be the ones to help you, that the Almighty, eternal Son of God, who came to give Himself for you, has not just rescued you from the past, but is here to help you in the here and now. You see, the advent of Christ promises us that in the here and now, in this portion of our redemption, He will not abandon us, then we can have peace and rest. Jesus says to the disciples in Matthew 11, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. If you're like me, you read those verses or hear them read and you think to yourself, that doesn't feel like my life. My, my life does not seem easy My burden does not seem light. I think Jesus perhaps is looking from the standpoint of full redemption. Someday we will look back and we will not remember all the pain and sorrow and turmoil that our hearts yearned over during our trials. But I think even in the here and now, He is saying to us that I'm with you. That's the idea of a yoke, isn't it? We are, we are with Him in the work. We are with Him in the fight or in the sojourn, whatever metaphor you choose to consider. And if the eternal Son of God, very God of God, is not limited in any sense in His power, then we can trust Him 
and we can rest in Him much like a child does. And isn't that once again the metaphor that we find in front of ourselves in Galatians 4, that we're sons once again? Just like a little child turns his or her face to his mother and father when he or she does not have the resource to deal with the scariness of their world, do we not have a father in a much grander sense who will take care of us? I find now 38 years into my life that this kind of confidence is still hard. It's still hard to trust in the midst of my trials and storms and my own sin. And yet, I'm told by my Savior that I can trust Him and I can rest. So, that's, that's a mental fight. It's an emotional struggle. But brothers and sisters, this is why we study these things in detail. We tell ourselves what is true to arm ourselves, to equip ourselves to deal with the painful reality of a yet broken world. So, the first implications for us and the present reality of, of our redemption is that we can rest. Because of the advent of Christ, we can rest. Secondly, we can fight sin and glorify God. If you're still with me in this section in John, in verses 15 through 17 of John 14, again, this section where Jesus is, is hinting at ideas of redemption, of adoption, Jesus also says in verse 15, if you love me, John 14, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and He will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees Him nor knows Him. You know Him, for He dwells with you and will be in you. The same Spirit that is given to us, as Paul mentions in Galatians 4, 6, is the one who allows us to cry out, not just, not just know, but cry out. Why does Paul say it that way? He says it similarly in Romans chapter 8. You cry out when you have needs. We have this rule in our house that our children are not allowed to talk to us from upstairs. We didn't have installed when we built our house one of those intercom systems. Some of you did very wisely. We don't. And so we say to our kids all the time, don't yell at us from upstairs because we're doing stuff and we, we can't hear you. But inevitably, several times a day, that's what happens. So our children scream down at us while they're taking a shower, up the stairs, down the hall, something like, Dad, there's no soap. Or, or Dad, Jack is hitting me. Or, Dad, um, I, I need some help. Or, Dad, fix me a snack. Or whatever. When they were really little and we wanted them to watch something different than us because we were watching like a grown-up show or they didn't want to watch what we were watching, they would go all the way in our bedroom, which is up the stairs, down all the way to the end of the house, and they would scream at us from our bedroom with the door shut, Dad and Mom, we can't work the remote. You know what it's like after a long day, you kind of settle in the couch and you like want to watch your favorite show or movie or whatever, and the last thing you want to do is get up and go upstairs and help them find their TV program after you've told them how to use the remote like a thousand times. One of the best things about my kids growing up is they can use the remote better right now. Some of you think that's horrible, but it is what it is. We tell them all the time, don't scream at us. But they're crying out because they need help. Why does Paul speak of, of crying out, Abba, Father, when he talks about adoption? Why? Because the reality is, even as grown-ups, we desperately need help. 
we need that help and no greater sense than as we try to fight sin and glorify God. Jesus goes on to talk about this metaphor of vines and branches in John 15. He himself is the true vine, and the branches are those that are his people. They, they, they draw their strength from him. How can one fight sin apart from the indwelling in Christ? How can one glorify God, bear fruit apart from dwelling in Christ? One cannot. You see what Jesus is saying here to the disciples? What I will do through my redeeming work is not only rescue you from the justified wrath of God, but I will be with you throughout the experience of your salvation. So there's a sense to which we have been saved. We talked about that last week. The first advent of Christ secures for us our position with God. But there's also a sense in which we are being saved. And of course, one day, which we'll talk about next week, we will be fully saved. The first advent of Christ accomplishes our salvation past, present, and future. And one of the realities is, is that we still struggle with sin. Who among us can say otherwise? We probably already have today. That is why in Galatians chapter 4, it is clear that we no longer are slaves to sin. Paul speaks of that in Galatians 4. We are freed from the slavery to sin, both in its penalty as well as its power. So the Christian, because of Christ, if you are united to Christ, you have been freed from the penalty of sin. You're no longer under condemnation. Likewise, you have been freed from the power of sin. You don't have to serve sin. But the frank reality is we still deal with the presence of sin. We'll still struggle with it, and we will until we die. So Jesus suggests to the disciples... And Paul says in Galatians 4 that, that we can be rescued from the presence of sin as well eventually, but in the here and now as we deal with it, we can find victory if we trust Jesus, the one who has saved us and is saving us even in the here and now, allowing us to fight sin and glorify the Father. Look with me please in Hebrews 2. This is the passage that Harvey read to us at the beginning of our worship time today. But again, we find similar themes in Hebrews 2 that we see in Galatians 4 and Romans 8 and John 14 through 16. Look in Hebrews 2 verse 5. The writer says, Now it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, What is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor putting everything under His feet. So, God cares about humans, flesh and blood. But, verse 10, it was fitting that He for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. We know that came to pass because He became a man too, Jesus did. Look what verse 11 says. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one origin. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. You see what happened there? That's profound. The Son of God became the Son of Man, took on human flesh, and called us brothers. 
We are brought back to the Father through our elder brother. Verse 14, since therefore the children share flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. Jesus became a man, took on human flesh to bring us as brothers and sisters to himself to take us back to the Father. It's amazing. Look in verse 17, however. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sons of the people. He became a wrath bearer. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. He has made us sons past salvation. But presently, what does the first advent of Christ hold for us? It holds for us the promise that we can trust him because he's a faithful high priest in the here and now and can help us when we are being tempted. Therefore, we are not left to fight sin alone. Christ's advent, taking on flesh, holds for us the promise of full redemption, past, present, helping us fight sin and glorify God and future when one day all of that will be removed and we'll glorify Him perfectly. So I say to you, brothers and sisters, that there are many purposes to the first advent of Christ, both what we saw last week, that that our salvation is secured. We have been rescued from sin that we might be adopted into the family of God, but there are present realities. And because Christ took on flesh and was tempted in reality, Facing the same temptations we face, he ministers to us as one who understands. This means that because of the first advent of Christ, you can trust him to help you in the here and now, to fight sin and glorify the Father. But thirdly and lastly today, not only can we rest in him, not only can we fight sin and glorify God, thirdly, we can also join him in his rescue mission. Turn with me back, if you don't mind, to the section we were at in John, John chapter 16 specifically. We're going to look at verses 8 through 11. So I'm saying to you, just to be very clear today, that the first advent of Christ holds out to us present promises, promises of rest, promises to help us fight sin and glorify God, and promises in regard to mission, joining Him in His rescue mission. In verse 8 of John chapter 16, Jesus says to the disciples, when He comes, this is the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, when He comes, He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment, concerning sin because they do not believe in Me, concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you will see Me no longer, concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. So the Spirit is the one who will convict the world of their sinfulness and their need for redemption. But the Spirit does not do that in a vacuum. In other words, the Spirit will do it through the disciples who are hearing the words of Jesus. But they're all dead now. So we, we take up the responsibility. How will the Spirit convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment? How will the world know that Jesus is the one who can rescue them from their sin? How? Through the Word of God preached by the people of God. So we join with him in his rescue mission. And lastly, Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20, 
verses with which you are well familiar. We call these the Great Commission. Jesus says to the disciples, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That's the result of his redeeming work. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. It's Trinitarian again. Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Joseph and Mary were told that one of Jesus' names would be Emmanuel, which means God with us. Matthew's gospel is bracketed by those ideas. God comes to us for redemption. God stays with us in our redeeming missional work. So the first advent of Christ certainly secures for us the idea of justification. We no longer need fear the condemnation of God. But beloved, it also holds out to us present promises. In the grand scheme of things, this slice of our redemptive work, it's small. Compared to what God has done in the past and compared to eternity future, this slice of redemptive history is small. But that doesn't always help us because it doesn't feel small, does it? It feels long. That's why the psalmist cries out, how long, O Lord? So while we are in this short slice of redemptive history which feels interminable, like it won't ever end, what do we need? We need to know that Jesus offers us current rest. We need to know that we can currently fight sin and glorify God. We need to know that currently Emmanuel is still with us and we join Him in His rescue mission to seek the lost who desperately need to come to Him who are no longer sons and daughters because of the fall, but need to be rescued, and they can be rescued through the elder brother who gave his life up for them to bring them back to the Father as sons and daughters, and he will do that through us, sons and daughters, calling others who are not yet sons and daughters because Emmanuel is still with us to aid us in the rescue mission of bringing many sons and daughters to glory. So, first advent of Christ is about our past salvation, and it is about our present salvation. And as we will see next week, it is about our future salvation where our inheritance will come to full reality. So as we close today, let's look once again at Galatians 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. May God confirm to us His great and precious promises to us. Let's pray.